China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, not to mention the persistent threats from terrorist organizations, the United States confronts an extraordinary array of threats with many of our adversaries working together more closely than ever before. So how should we respond? What kind of military do we need? And how can we ensure the United States continues to possess the most formidable air force in the world? discuss these questions and more, I am pleased to be joined by U.S. Air Force Lieutenant General Michael A. Lowe. He's the director of the Air National Guard, where he's responsible for formulating, developing, and coordinating all policies, plans, and programs affecting over 108,000 Air National Guard airmen and civilians across 90 wings and 180 installations in 159 communities throughout the 50 states, the District of Columbia, Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Virgin Islands. He served our country for decades in uniform, including as an F-16 instructor pilot and a group and squadron commander. He's deployed many times to combat. I'm Bradley Bowman, Senior Director of FDD's Center on Military and Political Power, standing in for Cliff May. I'm pleased you've joined us too, here on Foreign Policy. Lieutenant General Michael Lowe, it's great to have you here at FDD. Thanks so much for making time to sit down and, and have a chat with me. Oh, you bet, Brad. I appreciate being here. And you can just call me Mike. Okay. There we go. All right. Very good. Uh, well, well, Mike, uh, there is so much sincerely that we can talk about. I am uh, really excited just to jump right in. So with your permission, let's do that. Um, I always like to kind of organize our conversation just for the listeners to talk a little bit about the person, you, uh, a little bit uh, about uh, kind of the headaches, if you will, and, and aspirin. Because at FDD, kind of our culture here is we just, and you'll appreciate this as a, as a military officer, you know, we don't just want to admire the the problem. We want to try to solve problems. And so uh, let's we'll learn a little bit about you and and uh, and then go go from there if that works. So let's start with that. Tell me a bit about yourself. I understand you are from quite an Air Force family. Oh, absolutely. So uh, the Air Force started in 1947. Uh, my dad was right here from Washington, D.C. Um, and he actually joined the United States Air Force in 1956 to go off to the Air Force Academy. Wow. Uh, served 35 years in there. Uh, uh, absolutely a great role model. Uh, one of my heroes and went on to be a vice chief of staff, of the United States air force, and then commander of air combat command. The very first one when they merged tactical air command with strategic air command. So that was back in uh, the uh, early nineties. Um, from that growing up years, I moved around about 11 times until the age of 17. And at the age of 17, uh, a little bit before that, he was actually flying a sevens operationally. And I said, hey, Dad, I want to do that. How do I do that? And he, he just kind of chuckled at me. He probably uh, took that as a compliment yep. that you wanted to follow in his footsteps. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure at that time. He just kind of, <laughs> he kind of chuckled. He goes, hey, here's here's the three ways you join the United States Air Force. Uh, let me know if, if you need anything yeah. else. Yeah, so yeah. I go, well, how'd you do it? He goes, I went to the Air Force Academy. Ah, well, uh-huh. let me go do that. So, yeah. and, and lucky enough, I, uh, I did that. And from uh, I joined in 1980 to 84 mm-hmm. and then been serving uh, in the Air Force and the Air National Guard ever since. Um, uh, and, uh, as fate would have it, we've had many more lows, uh, cornitzers, um, in, in this, uh, in this relationship that have actually served in the United States military. So, so there's a lot of family members still serving. My son is still serving. He's, wow. he's currently over in Korea. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Well, what a, what a legacy of service for your family. So sincerely, thank you. I, you I, I don't think, I certainly don't take that for granted. I know our listeners don't as well. Thank you for that. I'd love to, um, you, you touched on a little bit there, but would just love to hear just very quickly some of the, uh, the, the, the highlights of your career, you know, 1984 to present. That's, that's a lot of time serving our country in uniform. What, what are some of the highlights for your career so far? Well, um, first off, just, Graduating from the United States Air Force Academy, uh, going across the stage and sh- shaking uh, President Reagan's hand. Wow, I good. mean, it was uh, 1984 yeah. election year. Obviously, a great time for our United States Air Force and military. Um, I, I call it the uh, Reagan year build-up years. Yeah. So the modernization yeah. of yeah. our current force. It, it was uh, it was a very special time. Wow. Went on to fly F-16s. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, I was an F-16 pilot, almost 3,000 hours in the F-16. Uh, started out in Europe during the Cold War. Um, and, uh, and a multi-capable F-16, meaning both I had a, a conventional mission and a nuclear mission in the F-16 at the height of the Cold War. Wow. Uh, I'll say, uh, you know, fondly that, uh, obviously we won the Cold War and in 1989, the wall fell. At that time, I went back to, uh, teach F-16s F, uh, F back in the, uh, 
in uh, the schoolhouse, um, what we call our flying training unit back at Luke. Uh, from that time, uh, there was a massive downsizing after uh, after the 91 Gulf War. Yeah. And so I took the opportunity to join the Air National Guard. Peace dividend, right? Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yep, We're that, never going to fight another conflict so we can yep. decimate the site. I'm, I'm exaggerating for a dramatic effect there, but <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so I, so I uh, joined the Air National Guard of Colorado. I uh, also uh, went off to get a uh, civilian career going, and that's one of the nice things about the uh, about being in the National Guard. You can actually do both. Yeah. Um, and then about 2010, uh, uh, it was time to actually uh, go back into the uh, staff world. So I was a I was a uh, combat F-16 pilot uh, for almost 25 years. Wow. Yeah. Wow. True highlight of the career. Yeah, and you had deployments in in both the Pacific and Central commands. Correct? Oh, absolutely. I mean, at that time, you have to think. About about it when uh, and a lot of folks who've grown up in in the 20 years of conflicts and wars I mean 20 years right at that time it was all about generating readiness and going overseas to demonstrate our full interoperability with our allies and partners that were over there at the time making sure they understood what the United States could bring and also trying to educate them on that so it was it was a very very good time so uh, Australia, Korea multiple times um, over to Europe uh, multiple times and then even uh, um, the unit has has uh, uh, went and covered every, um, yeah, every continent to include. I even sent a uh, a <laughs> flight dock down to Antarctica. I was going to ask. Yeah. that's always the trick question. Antarctica. You, yeah, you check that is. box. Yes. Right. Yeah, we did right. check that box. Right. So 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 when you look at this rotational model and what we've done, uh, we did that. And then of course, uh, there was a couple times in there. Uh, uh, for combat operations, and it was mainly uh, in the Gulf War. Uh, was on the first uh, uh, first what I will call post ninety one um, uh, when we got into the Air Expeditionary Forces. Sorry, I'm trying not to use acronyms. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'll, you know, I'll, the air acronym. I'll carefully the, correct you yeah. on on any of those. That Thank you. Do, you. But yeah, the yeah. Air Expeditionary Forces, and and how we get the guard into the normal rotation of of global force management. Nice. And so the Northern Watch, the Southern Watch yeah. is th- those types of things that we did after uh, after the Gulf War, and uh, and how we uh, how we continue to do that, and then of course nine eleven. Yeah. Exactly. And so at nine eleven we went from we went from pretty much what I would call a uh, mostly strategic reserve asset in the Air National Guard to now uh, mobilizing for homeland defense. And doing uh, about 94% of the Homeland Defense mission, uh, even currently, everything from sensing to the command and control side, uh, all the way up to um, uh, uh, to the operational, uh, both tankers and fighters, mm-hmm. and, and how we actually conduct Homeland Defense, uh, mostly for a counter-violent uh, extremist organization's threat but also for anything that NORAD NORTHCOM commander needs. So that's the National Guard. Very, very proud of of those things. But we've also projected power overseas. And so going into combat. It's uh, those are the highlights. Yeah, well, what a what a career, uh, yeah. and um, which I'm sure really prepares you well for your current position. Um, obviously, you know your position, but some of the uh, listeners may not. So, if if you wouldn't mind, just tell us about your your current position of director of the Air, the Air National Guard. What's your portfolio, and and you know what's your day job? Sure, director of the Air National Guard. It's a unique position in the Pentagon. Um, um, because I I but I what I commonly refer to is I have really a few bosses here. I actually work for the Chief of National Guard Bureau, um, and that Chief of National Guard Bureau works for the Secretary of Defense. But I also work uh, in the United States Air Force, the Headquarters Air Force staff for the Chief Staff of the Air Force, all working through the Secretary of the Air Force. So so I'm, I'm very clear on that. What I do is I plan, I program, I budget, I take care of the organized training equipping of 108,000 airmen of the Air National Guard, uh, organized under 90 wings in 50 states, three territories, and the District of Columbia. And so those those are big things. There's a there's some things that the Pentagon does very well from uh, from my times back and forth uh, up in the Pentagon, and that is obviously the planning program, budgeting, all that stuff, all the policies uh, that relate to Air National Guard, but also relate to United States Air Force, yeah, and some even on the Joint Staff level because of the uh, tie into the National Guard Bureau as a member of the Joint Chiefs Staff. 
I'd imagine that makes for a pretty robust inbox, uh, given uh, some of the numbers you just cited there. I, I won't ask you to explore that at the moment, but yeah. uh, um, uh, let, let's, let's, if I may, let's, uh, based on that wonderful context and getting to know you a little bit there, let's transition, if we can, to the headache section, like I talked about. And, and um, you know, I like to start with China uh, myself, because I, for one, uh, happen to agree with the national security strategy and the national defense strategy that China is the leading threat we confront because of its hostile ideology, because of its economy roughly the size of ours, and because they're conducting the most significant military modernization effort in the history of the People's Republic of China. Um, and I'd be interested in kind of hearing your thoughts on China, but also, um, you know, how we balance uh, the challenges between China and Russia, understanding as anyone who's spent a, more than a day looking at strategy, it's about allocation of finite resources and establishing priorities. So how do you see the China and Russia threats, General, and, and or excuse me, Mike, and, and, uh, and um, how do we balance between the two? Um, that is, that is a great question. So again, I, I'll go back to the uh, national defense strategy, national security strategy, right? You go 2018, we talked about China. I mean, it came in there. Hey, that, that yeah, is our kind of a wake up call. I'd was. say in many it ways, and, yeah, started a, a transition in thinking, I think for many in DC. It was. Yeah. And then of course we doubled down on it with the new national defense strategy, national security strategy. So what, what, and then we have a secretary of the air force who is very, very focused. He says, I have three priorities. China, China, China. And he is not moving off those priorities, nor should he, because he is worried about, uh, you can go read it in open and I don't want to have a, you know, a, a sole focus on, on China, but you can go read what they're, what they're doing. The modernization of their nuclear forces, the modernization and actually the capacity of their conventional forces. What the Chinese Communist Party and their leaders have said about the international world order and how they want to go remake do it that. in their image. Exactly. So you'll have another podcast on yeah. that, I'm sure. <laughs> we'll or you maybe you already we'll have. We have. Trust me, I'll send it to your team. <laughs> okay. yeah. And so, 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 so as I look at that and I look at my 108,000 airmen, it's a natural tension between this. How do I operationalize the national defense strategy? Exactly. Right. And, and the Air National Guard is integral to that national defense strategy. Yeah. As you, as you look at that threat of China, it, it is, and in order to do that, we have to generate air power. And do what the Chief South Air Force says, air power, anytime, anywhere. Okay, that's across the globe. And so, so, so this, is, this is a very challenging task for, for all of us in, uh, in the military, but especially um, in our United States Air Force. Yeah. Um, right now, with the global demands, we call it the global force management. Every combatant commander wants a piece of the United States Air Force. Right. Right. I mean, they do. How many, yep. how many fighter squadrons are in CENTCOM? I mean, that, that, Traditionally comes up. What, what, how many uh, forces are we going to do in Africa? You know, mm -hmm. uh, special ops, conventional, uh, the rest. Uh, what's going on in UCOM right now? We, yeah. we have a current conflict, right? But also the global ones, Transcom, Cybercom, SOCOM, some of those global combatants. These are all commands. the geographic and right. functional combatant commands right. by which right. DOD organize ourselves. Yes. And, and a few months back, we had a podcast with General Richardson, the oh, commander yep. of Southcom. And we yep. talked about her perspective on the China challenge and how she sometimes struggles to get some of the resources that she needs to meet her, her missions. Correct. And then we have Indo-PACOM with China. So all of those require the capacity of the United States Air Force to answer that call. Yeah. And that's where the National Guard comes in. But it also requires the capabilities. And this is where we've been focused a lot on the Secretary of the Air Force's operational imperatives. Mm -hmm. How do we do some of these things at scale and a time and a place that has a credible deterrent? And a credible deterrent is not only the will to do something, but obviously it's the capability to do exactly. something. So it's these modernization efforts. And so when the Secretary talks about, hey, I, I need the funds in order to get after this. And then I need to take some of those funds the, these years, early years, and divest some of the legacy aircraft and then modernize to the new aircraft. It's that tension of what are we doing in the rest of the world and then what are we doing here? So China's the focus and we need both the capability and capacity to have China. Now, Russia's not going away, right? Um, it's, uh, you know, Putin's war invading Ukraine. February um, 24th, yeah, uh, anniversary. Yep. If, if you look at some of the things, I'll tell you one of the unique things about the Air National Guard is a state partnership program. And after uh, Russia took Crimea, okay, Ukraine came to the state of California and, and you looked and asked for help. And they said, hey, I, um, obviously we don't like this, but we need help in developing a more modern military. If you look at the Air National Guard portion in the state of California, but also the Army National Guard portion, 
in the Army National Guard, they have divisions, brigades, battalions, uh, uh, a very large conventional force. In the Air National Guard, we have uh, mobility operations with C-130s. We have fighter operations with F-15Cs, which also do homeland defense and missile defense, integrated air and missile defense. You have the rescue forces uh, that that do the rescue. And then we also have space and cyber wing in there. So, so, the, so the California Guard has a lot of that. So through the state partnership program, and, and I'm just saying this way because this is how we uh, really uh, partner with our allies. When you look at Ukraine, they knew that this may not be over. Yeah, and they came to California, and we yeah. do a lot of active listening. Okay, yeah, and so so um, it's it, so we said, okay, what do you need? And we helped them. And state partnership program is military to military, military to civilian, and civilian to civilian. So so it is that one that's that's a whole of government approach, and that whole of government approach right now is allowing what I will call Ukraine or Russia, neither one of them, to have air superiority, even though they have bigger capacity and bigger numbers. Yeah. So how do I? How do I then take that now and look at how we're going to get after China yeah. and do that? And how do I empower those forces over in the Indo-Pacific and operationalize this NDS? Um, California is just one state. Obviously, the others, uh, the other 53 out there also have state partner programs. And so now, as we operationalize this, in, this national defense strategy and do that, how do I do that in an integrated deterrence with our allies and partners? And also, how do I do that in daily campaigning activities? Well, that's that's really good, and I want to follow up in a moment on on the aspirin section. I know it's always it's sometimes it's more logical to talk problem immediate aspirin. I just want to make sure we kind of lay out the uh, the headaches in, in, in first. And and I'm, but I am so glad sincerely that you mentioned the state partnership program because we did an event here with the chief of the National Guard Bureau uh, several months back, and we talked specifically about the state partnership program and the uh, I forget the exact number the many hundreds and hundreds of iterations that the Guard had with Ukraine pre uh, pre Putin's unprovoked invasion. And how um, that's paid dividends. I mean, obviously, full credit, most credit goes to the bravery and agility oh, of Ukrainians and also to, uh, frankly, in my view, the administration, the weapons we've provided. But I think you, you, we have to understand that the training that occurred, those investments over long, the relationships built, the capacity, capability, readiness that was uh, invested has, 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 has explains part of the success we've seen, I would argue, in Ukraine. Would you agree with that? I, I would totally agree with that. I would also agree that we um, – um, we have one unique capability in the United States that others like to copy, and that's our non-commissioned officer corps. That's right. It's our enlisted corps that are the leaders out there. So that same sort of thing that they look at, uh, that Ukraine looked at California and said, wait a second, this is unique. You're letting yeah. an enlisted member do this stuff on a battlefield. We have seen that pay dividends, huge dividends. Um, I know I was former adjutant general in Colorado. Yes. So I so I had Slovenia and Georgia. Which is the top officer in the Colorado Georgia. National Guard. It is. Yeah. yeah. And so I had two state partners, Slovenia and Jordan. Jordan asked us to do the same thing. We did not write their enlisted uh, book. We over the shoulder and said, what do you want to do with your enlisted force? Yeah. Their, their first yeah. comment was, look like yours. I go, <laughs> okay, no, no, no. Don't just translate our book. Write it for you. Smart. And so so th that that connections and those long-term enduring relationships yeah. really pay huge dividends. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, I, I think uh, very – well, I don't know. It seems to me a, a few people would have predicted that you'd still have a functioning and, and fairly capable Ukrainian Air Force at this point, one year into a, a large-scale massive invasion by Russia. So, I mean, that, I think that tells us something, and, and there are multiple reasons for that. Um, so, just before we pivot off China and Russia, just one question kind of trying to set up uh, some of the stuff that maybe we'll dig into more deeply in the, in the moment. Obviously, I think the, the if there were a point where uh, China – uh, in the United States, God forbid, were to come to blows, it, it could come in the Taiwan Strait. I'm curious, what would you see the role? What is the primary role of the U.S. Air Force in a Taiwan-related contingency? Would you say? Um, I would say that the primary role of the United States Air Force is to command and control the sky. I mean, it, it is air superiority. Now, the entire Department of the Air Force—it's it, not only the air, but also the space domain. So those two do domains. And so when, when you look at uh, any type of conflict, large distances, all that other stuff, it's the ability to not only defend the homeland. So when you look at China uh, with everything going on, we have to have the ability to rapidly mo mobilize our forces, okay? And then we have to be able to put them in a position to do, do the first thing, which is do not start the war today. I want to deter war, okay? So that's it. If deterrence fails— yeah. And, and, and that is the key. If deterrence fails, 
then I am going to need to be able to go over there and project air power, okay, from two, I'll call it two. One is a persistence, a persistence on the battlefield that allows me, like uh, like what is uh, currently occurring in one of the operational imperatives, air battle management system, yeah. ABMS, a persistence that says, I am always here, okay? Mm-hmm. But Which requires it, a degree of forward posture, correct? It does. Yeah, rather yes. than just basing everything in the United States and trying to flow it in once the shooting starts, which might correct. be a problem with a country like China. Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. And so the forward posturing far west as I have is Guam, <laughs> okay, in the Air National Guard, which, which, is, uh, which is there. And then, of course, we have forces forward of that in Japan and others. Um, and so, yes, very much so. And, uh, and so some of that are rotational forces. Some of that is the continuous presence, obviously, Korea, Japan, uh, Australia, and, and all those. And then some of it is also making sure that our allies and partners are with us on this because we don't, we won't do this alone. Okay. So, but it's command and control of the air. So it's that persistence, but then it also is massing force. Okay. And that gets into the other battle management, uh, um, how do I mass a force together to come at a time and place where I want to deliver air p- or effects, what, whatever effects they are, from the air and the space domains? Mm-hmm. And so getting that integration right. And that's why that is one of those operational imperatives on how we do this. Because, because overwhelming – we are used to overwhelming the enemy in the United States Air Force. Winning 100 to zero. I mean, right. right? It, it, this is, this I, isn't 51 but, to 49. I was going to get so, to this later, but yeah. I, I can't resist now. Yeah. But I can't – my impression when I talk to people who don't do this sort of stuff for a living, you know, who are busy paying the mortgage and raising the kids, is many of them think that we have a military and, and in an Air Force – that's from 1991. By that, I mean, and I, I speak to someone who'd been there, done that, had the t-shirt when you were there, uh, um, that we can go anywhere we want on the pace we want, take as much time as we want to build a massive main operating base, will not be challenged, will not be targeted, and commence the combat when we choose in the manner we choose and that we're going to win and we're going to win unquestionably. I think a lot of Americans thinks, think that's the way it still is, and, and we are not in that situation, I would say. Do you agree or disagree? I totally agree with yeah. you that we are not in that same situation. Yeah. You, you, you just look at, at – at, uh, and I'll just call it force structure – in A-10. It's a 40-year-old aircraft, okay? It was great for what it did in Desert Storm. It was great for, for what it has done since that in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, if you look at, uh, you know, um, an SU-25 Frogfoot on the battlefield today. Uh, which is th- the Russian. Which is the Russian variant of, of an A-10. Yeah. They're getting shot down. Okay. Interesting. Yep. And so, so th- those are the types of uh, uh, hardware that we need to get out of. And, and go into the newer hardware of F-35, F-15EX, NGAD, and, and those new capabilities. Which gets to uh, the sorry. Div- yeah, yeah, next, no, generation, no, no. next hey, generation air dominance. I got to tell you, so you're, the, you're the best general I've talked to in, in avoiding acronyms. <laughs> so uh, ex- extra credit points, not that you needed them. Uh, very, very good. Um, yeah, no, I want to talk about div- the D word, divestment yeah. here, and we'll do that. Um, sure. But uh, just rounding out the headache section here. So we've talked about China and Russia, you know, and the term great power competition is used. Some people like that term, some people don't. Um, I, I think it's good in that it, it says people, we are in a competition now, whether we like it or not. The question is how we respond. But I don't like it because competition makes me think of my son's baseball game or basketball game where, you know, you lose and you feel bad for an hour and then you're over it. I mean, this competition, the stakes are not, you know, trash talking points for 24 hours. It it's come, relates to our freedom, our security and prosperity, I would say. Yes. And, and, and an international world order. Exactly. Which is a term that's like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> well, right. It, you, you know, two world wars, 50 years, first half of the 20th century. 70 years of relative great power peace, right? These, this, that matters, <laughs> I would say. Okay. Uh, uh, so, um, so Iran and North Korea. So we spent a lot of time talking about China and Russia. Um, I, I told you where I stand in terms of China being the number one threat. Um, but I also, you know, I think we need to observe the world as it is, not as we want it to be. And, and the world that I see um, has really troubling threats, continued threats from Iran and North Korea. A, f- a few a few seconds on your perceptions on those two threats, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah. Um, so the, there's a perception that as we as we shift Indo PACOM, uh, you know, the Indo Pacific region, that somehow we're not going to be in the Central Command region, which of course is is where Iran's located. Uh, that is far from the truth, um, because we still need to be engaged over in Centcom. 
that puts a natural, again, it's a demand signal on, on the United States Air Force. And so, uh, part of that is we will continue to be over in CENTCOM at, as that deterrence to, to Iran. Um, read in the newspaper the other day, they, they have the capability right now to build nukes. That's scary. World's I mean, arguably leading state sponsor of terrorism with the world's most dangerous weapon. That's probably not good for us, not good for our friends in the region, and right. not good for world peace, perhaps. Correct. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, 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 yeah. and also, you know, the rocket forces and the strategic forces to, to deliver them. And so, so, yeah. so when, when you look at that and you look at what, you know, a, a world looks like with a China, Russia, Iran, North Korea uh, combination, it, it's not – a pretty sight out there. Right. And would you agree that China, Russia, and Iran are more aligned than they've been in a long, long time? I know the, uh, the intelligence community said in their worldwide threat assessment a few years back that the China and Russia, for their part, were more aligned than we've been seeing since the 1950s. We know that they've been conducting exercises, both air, land, and sea exercises. One of their naval exercises sailed around our treaty ally, Japan. You know, I saw that. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we have Iran providing Shahid-136 drones to kill Ukrainian men, women, and children in their homes, right? So we see, in some degree, I, I would argue, I'm interested for your on your pushback or feedback, I, I, they're not perfectly aligned. There are differences between them. We understand the tensions between them, but a growing kind of um, consolidation of our adversaries in many ways where they're starting to work together, I would say, in troubling ways. Would you agree with that? Um, yeah. And, and so if, if you look back in history, is this the new Soviet bloc? Right? And I'm just going to use mm-hmm. that term, right? Mm-hmm. Where, where, we have, where we have multiple countries aligned against freedom and democracy. Right. And, and so, so I would say that there's more potential for that now. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and that's why when you look at, you know, we call it great power competition or global. It, it's why our allies and partners are key to this. Exactly. Also. So we, we need to be uh, integrated together and integrated by design with our allies and partners as we move forward. And it's the whole of government. Last question in kind of this section, if I may. Um, uh, you know, maybe it's more positive and negative, but, you know, I, I, I think, um, you know, just as someone who worked in the center for a long time and had the private meetings with officers and then saw them go testify, right? Just if I'm being honest, sometimes there's a little difference between what was said in the private meetings. And, and, and that's not all nefarious, right? Because when you're saying things publicly, as we are right now, uh, you know, all kinds of people are listening, right? And, we, and what you want to say to the American people, what you want to say to Congress, uh, what you want to say to your friend, your allies and partners, and what you want to say to your adversaries are not always the same thing. And that's why I would imagine it's hard for someone like you, who when you speak, you have lots of people listening. But my general sense is that our adversaries have a pretty good sense for our strengths and weaknesses, but the American people, they don't always know. And if we don't ensure that the American people understand the truth of where our military needs some help, then then we're going to delay the day when our services get what they need to fix the problems. And so, uh, you, know, easy, you know, easy for me to say as the punk staff on the Hill, but let me, let me give you that opportunity. Um, you know, you, you agreed with my premise earlier that what the Air Force we have today is not the Air Force of 1991 or 1989. Uh, my sense is that it's older, smaller, and yet busy, uh, and has some some real problems. We have brave, skilled, wonderful Americans doing the best they can, but that there are some real problems. Do you see problems? Um, yes, I, I also see that in 1991 we were facing a a Soviet threat, which was the highest threat of the day that we thought about, and so we took it that problem set in really a joint manner and joint fashion. And so that problem set we looked at, we built an air force to to actually. Take, take on that. I mean, and we were going to win that war if indeed it ever occurred. So now we, we have not done that in a decades where we've actually built the capacity and the capability. And it's more of the capability side. And capacity is how yep. much yep. and Capacity's capability is what you can what do. Yep. And, and so now the threat has changed. Okay. And also – um, if you look at China and what they've done with intellectual property, what they've done with um, uh, putting money into research and development, how they how they have uh, have taken on their entire uh, whole of government industrial base and everything else, we we have a problem. Yeah. So so now, as America and as our allies and partners, are we going to build the capability to make sure that this world order stays in or not? And so, um, my first priority, and, and this maybe get into the aspirin, yeah, is, yeah, is, is recapitalization. Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. The big R, recapitalization. Right now, I have about 23 units that are in some form, either, either going through recapitalization, preparing, or actually, um, 
uh, in a place where they're sitting on legacy equipment and they need recapitalized. And I'm not just talking recapitalization and equipment. It's easy to go from, you know, an A10 unit to, to an F16, F35 or that. That, that would be, that would be just equipment recapitalization. The other piece is what are the new missions? Yeah. So recapitalizing the missions and new domains that would actually take this to the next level. And Just like we did in the shouldn't with deference to you, shouldn't the mission obviously come first because that's going to determine everything that follows, equipment, people, training, right. so forth. So now when you look at the Air Force, United States Air Force, how do we deliver that air power anytime, anywhere? How do we how do I do, you know, uh, air superiority yeah. anywhere on the globe? How how do I deliver um rapid global mobility? How do I take care of the command and control structure and the sensing and be able to deliver intelligence surveillance and, and reconnaissance at a time and place at, and choosing and get all that information fused? Okay. And so, so those types of things. And, um, and then the other piece, which is, uh, which is probably the greatest importance right now is how do I make sure that two legs of the nuclear triad are yeah. modernized? Yeah. As well as the command and control uh, infrastructure. To make sure that the president remains in control. It's such, I'm so glad you mentioned the triad, the three legs of our uh, our nation's nuclear deterrent that hopefully persuades adversaries that it would not be in their interest to conduct a nuclear attack against us. And the fact that the Air Force is responsible for two of the three legs, right? The bombers and the ICBMs and, and much of the command and control as well. So that, that's such an important point. So um, I definitely have a headache. So let's go to the aspirin. Okay. I, might need, I might need more than right. one here. Um, so for the listeners, uh, you know, the Air Force, as you touched on uh, earlier, is organized by an active component and a reserve component. And that reserve component consists of a guard and reserve, and you lead the guard element, as we said earlier. Um, and you touch, you began to touch on this, but I want to just be really clear, uh, just dig a little deeper on it because I think it, it'll affect maybe everything that follows. What role do you see specifically for the Air National Guard within the broader Air Force? Is it just more capacity, which we just said is how much, or is it a, a distinctly complementary, different role than the, than the active and reserve? Active and reserve. Um, I don't see a distinct, distinctively um, different role. I very, very much complementary. Okay, Chief Staff of the Air Force is in charge of building a Air Force composed of all three components that can bring out the best of all three in order to deliver air power. And so, so I, I don't see it uh, distinctively. I see us right now where we are postured is really across a broad spectrum from, uh, you know, nuclear capable uh, airmen uh, and, and bomber crews um, all the way down to um, special operators doing ground forces. So, I mean, so across that spectrum and all the support that goes into that. You know, everything from uh, JAGs and lawyers services and build it all up. So the high end F-22, F-35 missions um, to the mobility operations uh, across C-17s, KC-46s, um, KC-135, C-130s. I mean, so so we're, we're in every missionary. I mean, there's very few missionaries. There's a couple of exclusive ones. Uh, one is like uh, LC-130s. Those are those are our uh, polar birds. That's what that's what I call them. But they have skis on them, and they and they actually expand the maneuver of the tactical mobility community. Plus, also doing the the support for the National Science Foundation on a whole government approach. How do we get down to the South Pole? You get down to a mana. Yeah. Connected East One of the boat. continents you've been to, yeah. Antarctica. <laughs> <laughs> so right, and and yeah. so so you kind of you kind of look at uh, you look at what the Air National Guard does inside United States Air Force, and it's across all those areas. So so I pretty much say it is a uh, a very much complementary role. Inside of that, obviously, because we're uh, employed throughout the homeland, homeland defense kind of takes on that 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 meaning of okay. Uh, when you look at the analysis, hey, the most efficient way to do homeland defense is actually do that. But that is not the primary mission of that unit. That is one of the missions of that unit. And, uh, you know, I've commanded units that have been actually deployed to CENTCOM conducting combat operations while simultaneously conducting homeland defense operations. Yeah. And so uh, how am I able to do that in the National Guard? I'm able to do that with a very, very experienced workforce. Mm -hmm. You know, someone who has looked at the national defense strategy and have done this over uh, multiple years. And so that experienced workforce that I have that's, that rapidly mo mobilizes a community. Okay, because it is that whole government approach that rapidly mobilizes the community, I think is a distinct advantage to the National Guard. It's that community-based operation. If you want to serve the United States Air Force, I got 160 communities around the United States that you can come and serve your nation.
Which I, 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 you know, I, I, you know, my my fifteen plus years in in the army were all active duty, and I'll, I'll confess to you here now that I knew very little about the Guard and <laughs> Reserve as an active duty army officer. I just didn't, you know, yeah. just in nature of you know, when I served, where I served, and how I served. But I learned a ton when I went to Capitol Hill because I learned a whole heck of a lot about the New Hampshire Air National Guard oh, and awesome. Pease Air National Guard Base, and yeah. and I learned a whole lot about the Indiana National Guard and the uh, the A10 unit there out at Fort Wayne, and so um, and I really came on. Honestly, I'm not playing to my, the crowd here, but I really came to admire uh, the men and women who serve in the Guard and, and for what they do to, to defend our country. And, and um, so the more I learn, the more impressed I am about the role of the Guard. Uh, you know, one, uh, you know, I think one, uh, this might be a little too nuanced, but I don't think so. When you look at the, the Guard and the Reserve and the Army, uh, often, not always, not there are exceptions, but often the idea is that the guard and army guard and reserve would flow into a conflict months later, right, to, as a reinforcement. Um, and so that there's all kinds of things that um, uh, uh, flow from that in terms of readiness levels, responsiveness rates, alert rates, funding, equipment, all that sort of thing. What I think a lot of people don't realize, and I think you just kind of touched on it, but I just want to draw it out even more, is that with the air guard, it's not that way always you guys are many air national guard are 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 on just as much of alert as anyone on active duty and and pulling just as much of the day-to-day mission right now it's not some backup force that you know they can show up two months later and, and roll into the conflict you want to correct or add anything i said there i, I call us the nation's first responders yeah in, yeah. in, in, in the Air National Guard, we are structured differently than, than the Army National Guard or other reserve components. Um, and it is, it is that 24-7, 365 yeah. mission right now. And so, so, so when I, when I look at those missions that, that we're performing on behalf of the combatant commands and on behalf of the nation, we are, and I put it on my coin, we are always on mission. Yeah. They, there's not a, a, uh, date. Our time that we have not been on mission, and so so uh, it is different, yeah. And and that's what I what what is uh, commonly referred to as an operational reserve. Yeah. Okay. We have employee in place missions, whether it be uh, MQ nine caps over the horizon, or um, or obviously homeland defense with F fifteens and F sixteens and F twenty twos or tankers on alert. Um, so we we are that we are that force. So a lot different now. With that, though, I also do because you mentioned it, I do get higher funding and I get higher full time manning. So a uh, so that's number one. The second piece is um, as as you look at uh, the force generation models, and this is hey, how do I prepare the force to go do this stuff? Right now, the Air Force and it goes into number two is uh, my uh, I talked about recap a little bit, but I can uh, obviously get on that later. But the next piece is innovation and in what we're doing in the United States Air Force, and that is and that is a force generation model where all of uh, where all of our units, combat units, normally squadron levels, are going to be in this force generation model in order to deliver combat air power. That means that it doesn't matter if you're active guard or reserve. When, when you're in the ready bin, you have to be ready to answer um, your, okay, doc tasking. Hmm. Okay. Ah. <laughs> One of those acronyms yeah, I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. To go do what you're being asked to do in exactly. a timely manner. How there you go. There they, go. They, yeah, they, there that's a great yeah, one. Thank yeah. you, Brad. You're welcome. Lifeline. Yeah. I appreciate <laughs> that. Call a friend. So with that, um, I maintain the same readiness standards, same readiness levels, same inspection standards as the active duty Air Force. So, so there's no different in that, difference in that. So that when a combatant commander gets a guard fighter squadron, for example, he, he doesn't matter whether it's a National Guard fighter squadron or an active duty fighter squadron. He's getting a guard fighter squadron. And a lot of people in the, I didn't mean to interject, but a lot yeah. of people who are in a, um, a guard unit like you will have many times previously been active duty. And, and, oh, and the ability to flow between those components uh, gives options to service members and their families, depending on what's going on in their life at the moment, and allows people allows our country to continue to enjoy the skills that we've invested so much in by keeping them in the force in some way. We'd, I would totally agree with yeah. you. And I'd also say that um, just because of the nature of the Air National Guard, and I can go, you know, I can get you the data if you need it, but we're more experienced. I mean, in in that experience level, it plays out huge, especially uh, day to day as I'm as I'm holding on to these very old aircraft. Yeah. But some of them are being, you know, I mean, (laughs) the KC-135, right? I mean, it's older than me. So over 60 years old. (laughs) And so, you know, we have had 
uh, families, just like my family served the Air Force, we have had families serve in a guard unit that the grandfather brought the KC-135 into their guard unit, handed it off to the son, okay, who's now handed it off to yeah. the grandson, yeah. okay, and yeah. grandpa's still looking over and making sure that, yeah. that, that yeah. it's being as well maintained yeah. <laughs> as, as yeah. it was back then. Yeah. I so. mean, the beef, you know, so we just had the big uh, Juniper Oak 23 exercise yeah. with Israel, the largest and most significant exercise with Israel in history, um, and which uh, was run by CENTCOM for the first time. And I, and you mentioned a lot of the aircraft in the Guard. I don't know if the, the aircraft there, any of them were from the Guard, but we had KC-46s there. We had 130 RCs and all kinds of uh, F-16s, F-15s is, is quite an impressive exercise. We, we published this week on it, um, but uh, absolutely. So let's, let, let me, if I may, let's go to kind of the heart of one of the core issues that if we're going to have the Air Force we need, God forbid, if, if China conducts aggression in the Taiwan Strait in three to five years, or uh, Putin decides that he wants to try something in the Baltics or elsewhere, to ensure that we are going to have the Air Force that we need um, to, to make sure that our airmen and, and our women are successful and have what they need to accomplish their missions, we have to be making some decisions now, as you know far better than me. And, and budgets are finite. And Congress is saying, yeah, we're going to let you retire this aircraft, fancy word divestment, and we're not going to let you require, retire some of these. And the reason why the Air Force needs some of those retirements is it frees up money to buy the, the, air, the aircraft that, are, that we're going to need for that future conflict. And it takes time, of course, to procure these things. And so that gets down to money and budgets. And so in light of everything we just said about the role of the Guard within the Air Force, is there a tension? What is the tension between allocating, divesting aircraft and allocating resource when it comes to modernization? Can you talk a little bit about that? Kind of the, the, we talked about the budget pie between China and Russia. We got the federal budget competition. And then, of course, we have the competition within the Air Force. Can you talk a little bit about that? I, I'm happy to. And actually, uh, you had a previous podcast with Rick Moore, which probably yeah, hit, hit, yeah, hit, hit. Lieutenant hit, General Moore, yeah. the Air Force A8. Yes. Yep. Yeah, which probably hit on a bunch of this stuff. Yeah. But there is. So in, in order to get the capabilities we need, we, we need to budget and we have, quite frankly, in this, in this time, more, um, research and development dollars, right? Research, development, testing, evaluation. We, we have to get these new capabilities in the seven operational imperatives into the hands of the warfighter over the long term. That means, that means I have to, I have to actually develop those new capabilities. So. That is the process that's going on. In order to do that, I have to, and, and this is, this is, uh, what's going on is I have to actually stop doing some things today in order to get to that new capability in the future. That's the tension between the global force management side of the combatant commands. Okay. Inside the, inside our building and what we need for operations and maintenance today and what we're going to take in the future. So those are those are the things that are being, um, uh, and, and I'll you used wartime, but those are things that are being waged, okay, in, <laughs> inside the building. Now, inside the United States Air Force, being part of part of the United States Air Force, um, hey, the, the sharp elbows come out when we get in these rooms <laughs> and, and and we fight over sure. force structure and modernization yeah, and yeah. basing and all yeah, the things. Yeah. So my my thing always is this: is I need just need a stronger Air Force. Which me, which includes a stronger Air National Guard, you know, and and I'll call the Air National Guard a foundation for our national defense. National Guard being that part, both the Air and the Army Guard, but also also in a foundation for our national defense inside of this. So as a priority, hey, I'm never going to give up homeland defense, right? I mean, the Secretary's priority, defend 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 the United States, right? So so if you look at the Secretary of Defense, if you look at the President, we know that that is a inherent in this. So so we have to take care of America and the American people. I mean, so they, that, that doesn't stop. And then, then after we get, and we have to find the right resources, take care of that. Then after that, we have to make sure that we, okay, again, deter that aggression and deter any sort of strategic attack on us. So that takes resources too. And then we come down, down to the finite thing. Inside of this, very tactical, you know, when we get out of, out of a mission like A-10s, Okay. I, if I'm sitting on and I'm sitting on a lot of legacy platforms, there's that natural tension where, I, where I'm trying to fight for dollars and recapitalization equipment to do this, and I and I'm coming in there saying, "Hey, I need this." At the same time that the active component and the Air Force Reserves are doing the same thing, mm-hmm. right, with a smaller available budget to do that, and so so there's going to be that natural tension. I. 
I'll, I'll say it this way. I think we, we bring a, a great value for America. I think also you can lower your overall cost by, by recapitalizing the National Guard and Reserve. And it's because of my, you know, over two thirds part-time force. It's my ability to, to, uh, to rapidly mobilize and do that stuff on the same standards and that stuff. And so now what I have to do is convince the Air Force that, that, and it's not just the Air Force. Once it leaves the Air Force, it goes down right, to, right. to the office secretary yeah, of defense, you know, yeah. and everybody else. So and then there'll like, be all the, way then through, the White House you know, and then be the White House. And, yeah. around, around we and, go. Then, yep. and then and then over to Congress. Yep. So and 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 as you know, um Congress is very concerned about our national defense. Of course. And so yeah, I've met with uh, you know, many senators and representatives who go, Okay, how how can I help you? What can I do? Yeah. And and I take it as this. This is what our Air Force needs. I mean, we we've said it, minimum seventy two fighters a year. I yeah. mean, I mean, you know, I, I need what? fighters uh-huh. a year. Right now, the two in production are F-35 and production, F-35. Production, produce, 72 yep. fighters. Uh-huh. Yep, uh-huh. For, for this recapitalization. Yep. Yep. So F-15EX and F-35. Which I think relates directly to a point you make, and, and listeners will know I, I repeat this from time to time. I just think it's so important that, uh, you know, the, the department and its budget proposal, you know, you know, trumpeted the fact that, you know, we're, we're, they were requesting unprecedented amounts of research and development. I think that's wonderful, right? That's the seed money for future capability, obviously. But, you know, R&D programs don't deter and defeat adversaries, right? right? Fielding combat capability does. And that goes to what you just said is, you know, we can't be keep shrinking, having exquisite Air Force that's really awesome, but is tiny and not sufficient, without sufficient capacity. Are we, so as, so when you're divesting aircraft and you're buying new ones, things are not going to stay the same. They're going to change. Are we going to have a smaller Air National Guard in the future? Do you think? Is the size going to go up, down, sideways? What do you see in terms of capacity for the Air National Guard? Right now, I, I don't see that happening. Okay, because again, when you talk about the capacity necessary for the United States Air Force, we are capacity limited. So I just need the airmen in the right mission. I need to I get, need to give them the right tools and need to and then have them organized, trained, and equipped in order to conduct the missions of the United States Air Force. So so I don't see it. Okay, and and we're not talking about losing airmen, but I but I am seeing. What does that mean as far as that? When you look at the new capabilities like um, collaborative combat aircraft, CCAs, right, and and what those do. When uh, when you look at um, the B twenty one, which is the new fa- strategic the new bomber, bomber that they right? rolled out, they which rolled is a very, out. very cool video. If you haven't seen right? it, it looks very sci fi, a little bit like the B two looking, yeah. but uh, much better capability. I understand. And if you ever go out to Whiteman Air Force Base, you'll see the B two. What you'll see there is active duty and guard working hand in hand to to do that. I have uh, 27 instructor, uh, 27 pilots in the B2 Enterprise right now. 25 of them are instructor pilots. A lot of them are, are uh, weapons school instructors also. So, so that partnership with the Air Force, I don't think is going to say. So you need a, a strong and, and I'll say large amount of Air National Guard airmen to actually do our nation's work. And, and, and as some of the listeners may know, you know, generally speaking, uh, the Department of Defense doesn't build its own weapons. Obviously, this is in the in- industry, right? And, uh, you know, sometimes when you say, oh, the defense industrial base, you know, they think of Eisenhower's quote. You know, I, my attitude on that is that, um, you know, the reason why there are two or three reasons why the American military is so good. It's the quality of our people and their training and the quality of their weapons. And so I'm all for a very robust defense industrial base that makes sure that we never face a fair fight and have the best weapons. So, I mean, basically. Maybe that's a little simplistic, but that's kind of where I come down. So speaking of that, how would you assess the health as we go through this massive modernization? How would you assess the health of the, the Air Force's defense industrial and innovation base? Um, uh, much better question for the uh, yeah. um, Air Force yeah. Material yeah. But you're the customer. Gen- you're the customer. Person. You're getting what you need. Yeah. Right. And so, so, so part of being the customer on this stuff, and I work a lot with the depots and also the defense industrial base because we uh, buy a lot of money through the National Guard Reserve equipment account. Or buy a lot of equipment through there, modernization equipment, doing that stuff. So here's here's what I'm going to say has been played out, and I'll use Ukraine as an example, right? Um, we have rapidly sourced equipment for Ukraine, and at the same time, they're still running out of certain things, you know. And so, and now the production folks are going, "Hey, what what is it that is going to be able to produce?" So long term, if you look at the industrial base, the, you know, the, the contractors that go out there and source weapons, weapon systems and do that stuff, I would say the number one thing is stable funding. So you mentioned Congress earlier. Right? Is that, I would assume that's one of your talking points when you have a, a, a good intention member of Congress saying, how can I help? Answer number one, on t- how about a budget on time? How about that? 
not just the budget, but the yeah. appropriation that goes with it. Exactly. You understand being yeah. from Congress. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I need both. Yeah. I need an authorization, yeah. and then and then and then I need that appropriation. Um, right now, it all got done right before Christmas, and by the time the money flows, it, it, which it, is three months late because the fiscal year starts on correct, October first. October first. But but by the time the actual money flows and gets into the checkbook of the United States Air Force, which is then in the checkbook of the Air National Guard. Okay. Um, it takes a couple months. And then I have reports that I have to give back to Congress on how I'm going to spend that money. And then they come back and they say, yes. If, if they Why is that program taking so long? Exactly. What's the cause of all the delays? What's exactly. wrong with you, General? Right. Well, <laughs> thank you, right? Senator. But, you know, having an on-time authorization and funding would be helpful as we're trying to accelerate change or lose. Correct. Yeah. And then, yeah. then the other thing is, is, let me do some multi-year buys or don't restrict me on new starts. And, and some of those things as we get into these um, continuing resolutions, those CRs that we talk about a lot and, and go, okay, there's some fundamental changes we can do to get after this to both help the industrial base to keep them, you know, the weapon systems in production that, that I'm going to need or my allies and partners are gonna, going to need, okay, and then do that stuff. As far as what we're doing in the uh, depot levels and the works that and the work that is coming out of those to keep these old KC 135s flying, to keep F-16s in in a modernization schedule and do that stuff, I work uh, I work really hard to getting our folks to the right right place down there and actually have started some some uh, innovative things where we're putting databases together. So this gets back to our our IT infrastructure. Uh, in order, in order to aggregate data and put those things together, so that at the operational level, the squadron commander can actually look and see when the aircraft goes in, mm-hmm. and when it come, and when it's yeah. coming out, and can base the training model yeah. and, and the proficiency on that. So all of those things are are now that data visibility for us is getting there. Um, what that allows then us to do in the depots and and uh, is to actually then track where the problems are going to occur. And because of that, as you understand, it's go back and in this continuous process improvement is, hey, there's a failure at this section. How do we how do we solve that? And if your Air Force is not big enough, then having excessive time with aircraft in depot is very, very costly. I would manage to the global force management that you talked about earlier. Um, It's also funding some of those foundational accounts like weapon system sustainment. Yes. Which don't always get all the attention. They're not maybe as sexy, but uh, right. but fundamental, right? right? Fundamental to readiness. Yep. yep. Yeah. And and we have some innovation cells going on, you know, uh, printing 3D parts, doing that stuff. Very, very key to this. Some even at the local level. One area of focus for uh, myself and, and my colleague here, Rear Admiral Retired Mark Montgomery, we've published a bit on this. We, we, we've described where our country's at as a uh, munitions production capacity crisis. Uh, I, I, I avoid hyperbole assiduously, but I think that's an accurate assessment of where we're at as we're trying to um, conduct the most important modernization of DOD, I would say, in 40 years, as we're trying to arm Ukraine, as we're trying to make Taiwan a porcupine. We just do not have the defense industrial capacity I think we need. And when you look at, spe- that's a general comment, a specific comment. You, you know, I asked you about the role of the Air Force in a Taiwan contingency. You mentioned air superiority. I, you know, who am I to, dis, you know, to agree or disagree? That makes total sense. But, you know, I asked uh, General Moore about this and he he emphasized sinking ships, right? I mean, uh, sinking ships would be a fundamental role for the Air Force as well, in addition to air superiority, with deference to you. And to do that, you know, you're not going to throw pebbles at them, right? You're going to need things like the long-range anti-ship missile, which we're not producing enough of. You know, any any comment on that? I have any of that wrong? Uh, no, you, you actually have it right. I mean, yeah, sinking ships is inherent in, in actually developing air superiority, especially sinking ships that can shoot you down. <laughs> there you go. They're, exactly. they're, they're, they're you equivalent go. Okay. of the right. Aegis cruiser. Yeah. You know. A broader definition yeah. of air superiority. Okay, got it. Okay. I, I like to be explicit on sinking ships, uh, not because I'm trying to be cute, but because I want – I want freedom to win, and, and and I think for freedom to win, we're going to have to sink a whole lot of Chinese ships. Not that I want war with China, but if China believes we can sink a whole lot of ships, as you know better than me, maybe they'll, they won't roll the dice in the first place. Exactly. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, uh, what's the Air Force without pilots? All right. So I'd be remiss with that, and I'm talking to a distinguished pilot right now. Um, uh, do we have a pilot shortage right now? How serious is it? What are yes, we doing about it? We have we do have a pilot shortage. So we're taking a number of steps. Uh, the first step, obviously, is to produce them, but then it's also to get them seasoned, uh, because uh, as you know, uh, we've we've been sitting at a uh, at a long time. I call it a a national competition with the airlines and other businesses for for our pilots to go out and do other things. 
And so what we really need to do is just like the reason I'm still in uniform and uh, and a bunch of my colleagues is, hey, we have to make sure that the, that the Air Force, okay, and this national defense strategy that we're able to, and I'm, I'm going to call it, maintain that resource that we spend a lot of money yeah. training, yeah. okay? Um, part of that, obviously, is through the Guard and Reserve um, because if I have that capability that I do now with the, um, we call it 25 fighter squadrons of the National Guard, if I have those 25 fighter squadrons, I can take any, any of those people that are trained and want to leave active duty, I can actually give them a spot in the National Guard. So, so having a strong National Guard, having a strong uh, reserve component to actually grab that talent and make sure that we, and I'll call it, utilize it over the entire life cycle right. that they want, that they want to help out and they want to make national defense. So that's the first thing. Um, on the production side, we, we are, um, revamping pilot training. We're getting, we're bringing on new aircraft and T7s and doing that stuff. And so, so as we do that, we'll be able to produce enough pilots for the United States Air Force. And, and, and that's across all three components. So, so that's the initial goal. The next thing is, is making sure that they're, that they're seasoned. Right now, I bring in about three fighter squadrons, uh, three and a half fighter squadrons worth of active duty Air Force pilots that I season in the Air National Guard. Okay, that's across that twenty-five fighter squadron enterprise I talk about, but but they're but they're there because I have the experience. You know, when you're going to go out and fly in a National Guard four ship, uh, you're going to go out and fly and probably have two, even three IPs <laughs> in that four ship, um, and one of them probably went to uh, weapons school and is a patchware. And weapons school is the no offense intended the Air Force equivalent of Top Gun school. It is yeah. yes. I won't compare the two. Some, some, someday, <laughs> someone will say, oh, that's the, the Navy equivalent of, of fighter school. You've got right. to work cl- more closely with Hollywood. Work more closely with Hollywood, then we'll flip that script. I'm yeah, saying. there you go. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Anyway. So, so, the, so, yes, the Air Force's Top Gun School. Yeah. Anyway, so, uh, so, so as that, I mean, they're getting high-quality sorties with high-quality structures. Right now in the active component, we, we're – and and uh, the active component has really got a a experience level problem. They are they are losing pilots faster than they can replace them right now. So we're trying the best we can to work together. And this is active guard and reserve in in order to to bring up a a pilot population. To do that. So 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 that's the first thing. So yes, I do believe that we have a uh, what I would commonly refer to. I'm not going to say it's a crisis, but but. Challenge, challenge. Okay, the play okay. Word. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the, the yeah. play word. That yeah. that gets into the yeah. uh, into how we talk uh, differently yes. inside, yes, and maybe yes, inside the yeah, building yeah, and outside yeah, the building, yeah. right? Uh-huh. So, so it's a challenge. Um, with that, uh, the folks that that are in the Air National Guard, because I've gone and I've done this, you know, we actually take people and send them off to pilot training, serve their commitment in the National Guard, and then continue to serve. Right now, my retention rate is high. I got eighty five percent. If I if I'm doing that, 85% it's eighty five percent within the Air, Air yes. National Guard. Absolutely. Wow. Okay. And what's and, your goal? What's the? I mean, obviously, hundred percent. But uh, the goal, you know, if you look at an Air Force overall goal, it's about sixty five percent. The active duty is below that goal currently, but yeah, but right now, mine mine is eighty five percent. So okay. so they they like what we have yeah. to offer. The other thing is, I said, okay, how many people are at retirement eligible? Okay, because that's important, but still sticking around. Okay, forty nine percent. So even though they have attained retirement eligibility, they are still staying around with us. So, so you know, I mean, I mean, it's the ability not just to train them, but retain them. And then they still like what they do in order to say, hey, I can retire and I can go off and do these other things, right? Because they're in high demand elsewhere, making a lot more money with, with more time off, but, but they're still sticking with us. I mean, I mean, that's a pretty, pretty yeah. robust model. Yeah, it is. No, it is. And clearly you've thought deeply about this and, and, and are working the issue hard. Um, here at uh, FDD's Center on Military and Political Power, we have a military fellows program. And one of those fellows has been Lieutenant Colonel Brian Bud Lightsky, uh, uh, Air Force pilot, who's, who's a friend and, and someone who served our country also with distinction. He I, and I published an op-ed a, a few months back on the pilot shortage and trying to put forward some constructive ideas on it. To what degree are you looking at, currently implementing or looking at, um, 
um, giving mid-career pilots who are thinking about, you know, not, not just anyone, the best, the, you know, the best, the ones that you really want to retain who are mid-career, who are eyeing very lucrative offers from Boeing, from, uh, from United or, or whoever, um, the opportunity to choose future assignments. Uh, and, and, and that really gets to the broader question is why do people leave? It, it's, um, is it, pay? Is it money? Is it uh, pride of service? Is it frustration with uh, COVID policies? Is it, is it political correctness? Why are people leaving and why are people staying? Well, I mean, what's the fundamental motivation in your experience? Um, I, I, I like to go more on the positive side and say, why, why are they staying? Uh-huh. Right? Sure. I, mean, I, mean, I give you both right? options. <laughs> yeah, okay, good. I mean, it, because, yeah. you know, and it goes even back to, you know, why I stayed. I love serving my country. Yeah. I love serving my state, my country, being part of the community and that stuff, while also having the ability to actually serve my country. And and I call it the higher calling of the United States Air Force, right? Um, Why did I leave at the time that I left? Okay, that that was a decision of, hey, the Air Force is downsizing at this time. I saw an opportunity to leave and still serve my country. Right. 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 So so a little bit just in a different capacity. So 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 for me, I I think it was in uh, I call it it's never an easy decision to leave the act duty, but it was that decision. Um, as others leave, you know, um, there is everything from uh, family um, uh, draws to obviously monetary ones to, um, you know, quality of life or quality of service. They, they, they uh, sometimes they just can't see themselves, you know, uh, doing different things. And, and so, so I, I really, uh, and I've, I've mentored a lot and I really do work with them. And I, and I say, so what do you really want to do? So sometimes it's just talking mm. to our people and then trying to figure out the, the unique way to, to actually position them correctly in order, in order to get that. And, and I think that's it. Um, in the guard, we call ourselves a guard family and I really do mean this. So in the guard for me, I really work on the family aspect and the employer aspect. Cause if I lose any of, any of those two, then they're not going to serve. Right, especially the yeah. family. If, yeah. if if I make it too difficult, they're not going to serve. And then the then the other piece is because you know I have a lo- much larger part time force. Is I need to make sure that they have good jobs in the communities where they're living, mm. and those jobs understand that connection right. with the National Guard and military. So 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 when I say it, I said, hey, I have a service member who who I'm who I'm doing everything I can for take care of the people side of this. They'll take care of the mission side of it. And then what I do have is I have a family. So remember, we're a guard family. Open up the guard bases. I have taken, um, and and I'll say it this way, I feel pretty proud. My spouse and I really work together on this stuff. Uh, Both in the state and the local level, I'd bring family members in, and some of the family members had never heard what their guard members were doing. Right. Yeah. Because because they're you yeah, know, they're sacrificing they're, so right. much. Yeah. And, and, birthdays and, and anniversaries and so forth. Right. And then they don't go back and they explain what they did on a deployment or or what they're doing for national defense. And so what I would do is I would bring all the family members in and I'd say, hey, here's where your guard is located. The other day before I went over to Africom, we the Air National Guard was in 114 countries. So I said, hey, here's where your guard is today. Okay. And here's what they're doing in each of the geographic combatant commands. And, and that, and, and I said that sense of mission and that sense of pride, they went, wow, I never knew my, my, you know, my service member, you know, my spouse, my mom, my dad did these things. I mean, they, they just didn't understand. So, so if you can, if you can engage the family, it is very, very powerful. The, the next piece on the, uh, on the family is the employer too. Hey, when you come back, you really, really need to go tell your employer what you did. Take some pictures, show them what you were doing, whatever it happened to be, but go back there and do that. And I said, and then, and then thank all your other coworkers. You know, I mean, it's so, no, no, so that's, these things that's are so great. good. It, we can build the best aircraft and missile in the world, but we got to have the quality people to, to operate them and retain them. It's such an important point. The last question I, I'd be honored to ask you, I always tend to ask uh, military leaders this question uh, because it kind of goes to, to my heart, frankly, in, in trying to make sure that the brave people that we give a mission to conduct, that we give them the means to conduct it. I, I think it's a national security imperative and almost a moral imperative. And that's why I always go here. Where would you spend the next dollar? If you got one more dollar, uh, knowing what you know, have, with the priorities and challenges you you have and see, where would you spend the next dollar? Recapitalization. On anything in particular? On uh, a fighter fleet that has the capability and capacity to, uh, to deter China. Excellent. Is there anything I should have asked you that you would have liked to have been asked uh, that I didn't? Um, no. Um, I, I, I'll just put it this way because uh, – um, 
Th- these are the three things that, you know, after being in this job two and a half years now, uh, that I'm doing with our units out there. You know, the, uh, the 50 states, three territories, District of Columbia, and also the 90 wings is I'm really trying to get down at the local level of three things. Recapitalize. Yeah. Think about the national defense strategy, how we're going to do this in the future. And let's, and let's work together to come up with a recapitalization strategy. The next thing is on the innovation front. We, we actually out innovate the other components sometimes because of our ties into the community yeah, and industry. That's a great point. So, so grab that community and, and use, use your innovative powers to, to again, build a much stronger United States Air Force, right? As, and then, of course, that'll build a much stronger joint force in order to get after these problems. And we're uniquely suited in the National Guard, I think, because of our Army brethren, also in the States, to work closely together, to integrate across the force and do that stuff, and also, obviously, touch any of the active component bases or, uh, you know, that are there. And, and, then, and then the third thing is engagement. And, and you mentioned it, but I, I really do try to get down to that local level of engagement and, and make sure that all the states and all the wings and all of that, they are going to talk to the Chamber of Commerce. They're going to talk to the state legislatures. They're going to say, hey, we are operationalizing the national defense strategy for China. And here's why China matters. And they're explaining in communities, which is is fundamental to break down the divide between what we we need to be doing and explain to the American people are ultimately going to pay the bill one way or the other. I can tell you my neighborhood back in Colorado, when, when, when I went back there, you know, and saw all my old neighbors, they go, Mike, what keeps you up at night? And I said, China. Yeah. And they all looked at me well, like, well, yeah, huh? well, what? Yeah, Tell me about yeah, it, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. so, so I think we, I think we yeah. need to yeah. do that. So recapitalization, uh, engage, uh, innovation, and engagement. Well, Mike, uh, thank you so much for uh, sitting down with me. I really enjoyed it. I hope you have as well. I've learned a ton, and I, I sincerely want to thank you for your decades of service and, and for the distinguished service of your family, which I was, it was wonderful to learn about. Ah, thanks, Brad. I also want to thank our listeners for joining us as well. And I look forward to meeting up again soon here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpolicy at FDD. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.